Well, surely by now, all of you have eaten the Lord's chicken, Chick-fil-A, that is. If you've never been there, you can't go today, because I'm sure all of the employees are at church. (laughs) But if you've been to Chick-fil-A, you've had this experience, I'm sure, if you're a polite person, when one of the employees there does something for you and you say thank you, they are trained to give the response. They all give the same response. They don't say you're welcome. They don't ignore you like they do at Burger King. But what they say is, they say, my pleasure. You say thank you and every one of them, every time, my pleasure is what they say. That's an interesting response, isn't it? My pleasure. Now, certainly they don't, they don't always mean it, but they say it. <laughs> and it's nice to hear. It's nice to hear. Well, on this resurrection day, I want us to think of God's pleasure. You've heard it twice this morning. Look at it again in verse 3. The Lord does whatever He pleases. Whatever He does, it's His pleasure to do it. All that He does is His pleasure. It's an amazing thought. And I want us to think of this, of course, in light of the resurrection. Psalm 115 is an incredibly important psalm. It's a critically important psalm for our theology. There's a clear explanation in this psalm about the two demographics that exist. I've talked about this before. All the demographics that are out there about ethnicity and age and education and income and all of that, none of that matters. But at the end of the day, there's only one demographic that matters, and people are on one side or the other. They fall into two categories, those who bow the knee and worship the one true God and those who refuse to do so. Those are the only two categories of people. In the end, when we all stand before the Lord in judgment, that is all He is going to see are those two categories of people. Anything else that we've done on this earth, doesn't matter. All that matters is what have you done with the revelation God has given you? What have you done with Jesus? Well, the psalmist starts this psalm by saying, not to us, Lord, pleading with God, not to us. You see, it's repeated two times, not to us, glory, but to your name, give glory. He's asking God to give himself the glory. God, glorify yourself. Not to us be glory, but only to God Himself. And he gives two reasons for this right there in the first verse. Because of God's loving kindness and because of His truth. That word for loving kindness is a very common word in the Hebrew Old Testament. You see it all over, especially in the Psalms. It's the word hesed. It refers to God's covenantal love for His people. Why should God glorify Himself? Why should God get glory? Because of His loving kindness. Because He has a covenantal love, not just a whimsical love, but a covenantal love that He makes with His people. He never leaves them. He never forsakes them. He causes them to understand His goodness, and they are in relationship with Him. He gets the glory. And because of His truth, His truth, of course, is the truth. There is no truth that exists except that which is real, that which is in the mind of God. Because God is the author of truth, because God is the absolute sovereign, the one over and above all things, to His name be the glory. 
Truth is His truth. This is His world, and we're living in it to bring Him glory. These two aspects, His loving kindness and His truth, these are so fundamental. Are you new to Christianity? Are you exploring Christianity? Are you really far away from Christianity? This is the first thing you need to know. God is. He deserves glory, and He's full of love and truth. That is the most basic, the most fundamental theology of the Christian faith. The psalm answers all the why questions. You come to God with all kinds of why questions, don't you? <laughs> why did this happen? Why did this happen the way it did? Why did this happen the way it did at that time? Why, God? Why? He's bringing Himself glory, and that is ultimately the answer to all of our why questions. If God is in control of all this, and He is, and if He is good, and He is, and He's glorifying Himself, He is, then why is He letting these things happen? Because they are good for His glory. He's doing all things to glorify Himself because He is the one worthy of it. I've said this before too. We, we think of this in terms of a man. If God is just a man or a woman like you and I, who's doing all things to glorify Himself, how egotistical, how arrogant, how conceited. But God is not a man. God is the Creator, the capital C Creator of all things. In Him there is no darkness at all. He is perfectly pure. He is absolutely full of love and truth. He deserves to be glorified. That's the difference. If any of us go out seeking our own glory, we don't deserve it. But God absolutely deserves it. And it is not egotistical or arrogant or prideful for the perfect Creator to glorify Himself. It's right and it's good. And we see it testified to all over the Scriptures. Why is anything happening the way it's happening? Because God is getting glory through it. It's a startling statement in verse 3 again that He does whatever He pleases. Whatever He wants, He does. There is no one He submits to. There is no one that He goes and gets their counsel and then submits to their plan. He does whatever He pleases. And He has chosen to glorify Himself by allowing the world to question He is. Look at verse 2. The nations are saying, where now is their God? And God's allowing them to talk that way? You know, He could stop their mouths at any time He wanted. But He does whatever He pleases. He's allowing them to do this. He's getting glory even through that. Isn't that amazing? We must reckon with, as human beings created in God's image, we must reckon with the freedom of God in all things. We are much more comfortable with a God who is bound like we are. It's easier for us to swallow that reality, but that's not reality. That's a lie. He is totally free, unbound, doing whatever He pleases. We want a God that submits to us. If we pray to God and say, do this, we want a God that says, okay, whatever you want, 
but he does whatever he pleases. Let me get theological with you for a moment. This is from the Westminster Confession of Faith. It says, God, all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Yet so, as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty of contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. You were hanging with me for a little bit, and then you got lost, didn't you? That's okay. What this is saying, and and again, let's look at it again, just the first statement, God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of His own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Just handle that statement. God has sovereignly ordained all things according to His will alone, and yet man is still responsible for all the sin he freely commits. You're never going to figure that out. You're never going to exhaust that conundrum. But it is on you to embrace both of those truths. We see this so clearly in the cross of Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 2, Peter is preaching to the Jews at Pentecost, and he says that this man, Jesus, you delivered up according to the predetermined plan of God. Yet, They were responsible for killing him, he says. It all happened in accordance with the predetermined plan of God. And yet they were responsible for it still. God has sovereignly ordained all things according to his will alone. And man is still responsible. It's an amazing thought. Perhaps you'd be more comfortable with just hearing again the third stanza from This is my Father's world, one of my favorite hymns. This is my Father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, He is the ruler yet. This is my Father's world. Why should my heart be sad? The Lord is King, let heavens ring. God reigns, let earth be glad. Aren't those good words? He is in total, full control. He does whatever He pleases. And although the world mockingly asks the question, where is He? Again, verse 2 in Psalm 115. They're mocking, where is your God? The actual answer in the next verse, He is in the heavens. He is in the heavens and He does whatever He pleases. He is outside and over above all of creation. He is in control of all these things. He sees and knows and hears all things. He's involved in every way because He's better than that which He created. He cannot be controlled or influenced or manipulated by man as we so often are. Think of all the decisions you've made in your life because you've been controlled or influenced by another. But God is doing and He is allowing exactly what He wills. He does whatever He pleases. Huge, huge statement. So let's take this theology of just these three verses to Isaiah 53. Turn with me there to 
Isaiah 53, and this is really close to the middle of your Bible this time. Just a few pages forward from the Psalms, you'll find the book of Isaiah, and I want you to find chapter 53, and let's look at the first six verses of Isaiah 53. Remember who God is as we read this passage. Isaiah 53, verse 1. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For He grew up before Him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He, has no, he had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon Him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to Him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging, We are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. This is fascinating prose from the prophet here. He's speaking in the first-person plural. You see in verse 1, our message Who has believed our message, he asks. And he goes on to say, we despised. We considered him stricken and smitten by God. The one speaking here is a representative for the nation of Israel. When he asks the question, who has believed our report? It's a representative speaking of those in Israel who have believed. There's a remnant who has believed and proclaimed the good message. You see the question of verse 1 again, who has believed our message? The gospel is in view. This is hundreds of years before Jesus came. Hundreds of years before Jesus walked the earth. And this is talking about what Jesus would do for salvation. What Jesus would do for us in our state provide salvation. And a remnant would believe and have a message to share. Who has believed our message, he asks. Now that same remnant who believed, who has a message to share, look in verse 4 again. They were there considering this Messiah who was to come, stricken, smitten, and afflicted. We considered Him punished for His own wrongdoing, it says here. We looked at what was happening to Him and we considered that God punishing Him for His own sins. But at the start of the verse, it was our griefs that He Himself bore, our sorrows that He carried. Verse 5, our transgressions He was pierced through, for our iniquities He was crushed, for our well-being He was chastened by God, and for our healing He was scourged by God. 
Although we considered him to be slain by God deservedly, that was not the case, it says here. They were ignorant about whose griefs and whose sorrows he was bearing. And this is very important for you to understand. This is talking about Jesus, of course, about 700 years before Jesus came. And when Jesus came, He did not sin in any way. There was nothing He did wrong from birth at all. We really can't begin to wrap our minds around that because we are so in touch with our sins and shortcomings, or we should be. But this is an amazing thing that Jesus came as a man, truly man, bone and flesh like us, lived a life in that culture, yet never sinned. We call this the active righteousness of Jesus, that He positively obeyed all of God's commands, all of them. There are over 600 in the Old Testament. You didn't even know that, some of you. Over 600! And He perfectly kept each and every one. He should have never been killed. He should have never died in the sense that He had no sin whatsoever. And yet we, it says in verse 6, each of us, every one of us has sinned. We've gone astray. We've turned each to our own way. We have to see ourselves in this, don't we? You have to look at Isaiah 53, 6 and see it as a mirror. Each of us has gone astray. You know, sheep are very prone to play follow the leader. Where one or two go, the whole herd goes. The, the whole herd is going this way. Well, I'll just join in. In our case, it was Adam. Adam sinned and we all died. We all fell too. From the first man came death. The herd headed south, and we all headed south. And yet, Yahweh, the God of Israel, caused the sin of these sheep to fall on Him, the one who did no wrong, the one who perfectly obeyed all of God's commands. And I want you to, to see this in verse 6. Don't pass over this word, caused. It says, the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all, to fall on Him. This was God's purpose. Jesus didn't come to be killed accidentally. Jesus didn't come so that everyone would just say, oh, this is all great, and no one ever touched Jesus, and He just remained forever. That wasn't the Lord's purpose. But Jesus was sent to die. Jesus was sent that He might bear the sins of the world. God's purpose was for this one to come and bear the sin and penalty of others. Commentator Edward Young says, His death was not in the hands of wicked men, but in the Lord's hands. This does not absolve from responsibility those who put Him to death, but they were not in control of the situation. They were doing only what the Lord permitted them to do. The Lord caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. 
Remember the pronouncement of Psalm 115, He does whatever He pleases. And we see in this text that it pleased God to put our iniquity on His only Son. Pick up with me again in verse 7. He was oppressed and He was afflicted, yet He did not open His mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so He did not open His mouth. By oppression and judgment He was taken away. As for His generation, who considered that He was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of My people, to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with wicked men, and yet He was with a rich man in His death. Because He had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in His mouth. Look at this. But Yahweh the Lord was pleased to crush Him, putting Him to grief if He would render Himself as a guilt offering. Jesus was put to death quietly as a sheep, it says. He was silent before His accusers. And He was cut off in behalf of those who scorned Him. He truly died. He was put in a grave. It wasn't a fake death. It wasn't acting. It was a true death placed in a grave. I do need to make a little note on verse 9 where His grave was assigned with wicked men. Crucifixion wasn't the end of mocking when someone was crucified. They were mocked in their resting place also. Put this man's body with the wicked, that he would be forever mocked among all the generations. Crucifixion was humiliating enough, yet the grave assigned to him was one that would continue that humiliation. But against man's plan, he wasn't put with the wicked. He was actually assigned a rich man's grave by God. He was with a rich man in his death, it says in verse 9. And you can read about that in the gospel accounts, how God intervened and fulfilled that prophecy. But Yahweh was pleased to crush him, it says, verse 10, pleased to do this, even though he was innocent. What a difficult reality to grasp, that God was pleased to crush the innocent one, the only innocent one. He's in the heavens and He does whatever He pleases, and this pleased Him. You see in verse 10, that phrase guilt offering, that's a central aspect to all of this. He was fulfilling the requirement of death. Death is the penalty for sin. Jesus went as a guilt offering in our place, taking on the penalty we deserved. In our place for our sins. He was a propitiation, it's the New Testament word, a covering for us as He bore the wrath of God. And we all need that covering. Each one of us, no matter what you think of yourself and your life, each one of us is a fallen sinner. Each one of us deserves judgment from God for our sin because we sinned against Him. And yet, Jesus stepped in. For those who have gone astray, those of us who are in dire need 
of reconciliation. We are in desperation to be reconciled to our Maker, to be made one with our Creator. And it's through this guilt offering that we can be reconciled to God. I mentioned that as we, like sheep, have gone astray, we were following Adam. (laughs) There goes Adam into sin, and we all went with him. And yet God provides us a new sheep to follow, doesn't He? Jesus, too, is a sheep in this sense. Verse 7 again, like a sheep that is silent before shearers. Here He is going to the cross meekly, obediently, willingly, and we are to see and follow Jesus, to turn from our wicked ways and bow the knee to Jesus. And in doing this, we are provided for in Christ with innocence. We're forgiven, and we're given eternal life. The only reason we are able to have eternal life through the sacrifice of Christ is because the sacrifice isn't the end of the story. Look in verse 10 again with me. After he's rendered as a guilt offering, that means dying in our place, look what happens next. He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. This is one of two places in the Old Testament where the resurrection is prophesied. One of two places. The first one is Psalm 16.10. And the other is right here, Isaiah 53.10. Consider all the times we think about Isaiah, refer to Isaiah 53 regarding Jesus' death. It's so detailed, it's so specific, it's hundreds of years before. It's so important, isn't it? Important. But consider that it also speaks of the resurrection, that the guilt offering wouldn't burn the altar turn into ashes. The guilt offering wouldn't see decay, but rather the offering would have its days prolonged. Jesus, who came and died in our place, He wouldn't just die. He would continue on after His death. He will see His offspring, it says in verse 10. His days will be prolonged, and God's pleasure will prosper in His hand. There's that word again, pleasure. It didn't just please God to crush His Son. It pleased God to raise Him up and to prosper Him and to exalt Him and put Him in a high and lifted up place where we could all recognize and look and see King Jesus and bow the knee to Jesus. The sheep does not remain dead, but after rendering His life as an offering, He goes on to see His offspring. The offspring here are spiritual offspring. 
Of course, Jesus didn't have any earthly children. He didn't have an earthly marriage. But He has many children in the sense that all who believe in His name, He has given the right to be sons of God. We are His offspring if we believe in Him, if we're united to Him by faith. And He resurrects never to die again. When it says His days are prolonged, that doesn't mean He lived for a little while longer and then He died again. It means His days are eternal. Infinitely, His days go on. Jesus rose again never to die so that He can save His people from their sins. Look at the end of verse 11. The servant justifies the many. It speaks in the future tense here, He will justify. This is a courtroom word where you're there being accused of something. You look like you're guilty. It seems like the verdict will be guilty. And yet one steps in and declares you innocent, justifies you, causes you to be considered innocent forever, declared righteous forever. By His work, you can be justified. And being judged by God is not something that we should approach lightheartedly. It's not something that we should take uh, with a grain of salt, something like that. But judgment from God is a serious matter. If this is His world, if He is the author of truth, then judgment standing before Him is the most serious matter. Psalm 143, verse 2. You don't have to turn there. Psalm 143, verse 2 talks about a day of judgment. The psalmist pleading with God, Do not enter into judgment with your servant, for in your sight no man living is righteous. What a statement about humanity. In God's sight, not one person is considered righteous. Unless, verse 11, you are justified. Because when you are justified, your guilt is totally removed and you're given the righteousness of God. He will justify many. It also says in verse 11, He will bear their iniquities. He will bear their sin. This is the means by which people are justified. There is no other way to be right with God than through the work of Jesus, understanding that He bore your sin, placing your faith, placing all of your trust in the finished work of Christ, coming to the person, not to the idea, but to the person, Jesus, and being reconciled to God once forever because He will rule forever. That's what verse 12 is all about. Jesus will be considered as the strong and the mighty ruler, the king. He has a privileged and exalted position, the most powerful position. And this has started now, but it will culminate in His return because He is coming again to rule in this place, to display His kingship. He is the king. As far as salvation is concerned, God not only provides us salvation, He saves he doesn't just do it and then sit back and wait for people to roll in. I, I've had many times in my life where I've hosted events, and there have been times that I've been certain that it was going to be great, and there were times where I was really unsure. Most of those happened here. <laughs> 
And you prepare, you plan, you put up the invitation, you over-communicate, you make sure everybody knows, you create all the texting things and all the social media things, and then you sit and you wait. And the time comes and there are two people there and you start to get really nervous. That is not what salvation is like. When Jesus died and rose again, He wasn't doing it for an if or a maybe, or a perhaps. He wasn't doing it because of all kinds of contingencies that might exist. It wasn't possible for Jesus to die and no one come to Christ. It wasn't possible for Jesus to be raised for our justification, that's what it says in Romans 4, and then no one be justified. It says right here that He will justify the many, and He has, and He continues to. He took on the sins of His people. He bore their iniquities, and as King, He sovereignly, powerfully, graciously saves. In great mercy and love and truth, He saves. After His humiliating death, Jesus was raised in glory, proving that He is who He said He was, the great I Am. Jesus declared this on multiple occasions. Think of all the I am statements in the Gospel of John. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the door. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection. He wasn't just willy-nilly saying words. Every word that Jesus said was perfect. And when He said repeatedly, I am, I am, I am, He was reinforcing the truth that He is Yahweh, the I am who presented Himself to Moses. The one who speaks out of the burning bush says, go tell them that I am sent you. Jesus is the I am. And he proved it through his victory over the grave. Therefore, Jesus' entire work is an intercessory ministry. Look at the end of verse 12. He bore the sin of many and he interceded for the transgressors. This is both past and present. We see it in the cross, Jesus in our place for our sins. That happened at a moment in time. It was one event that happened for the world. We see it. And yet it happens moment by moment for all who call on His name. This is perhaps the most important doctrine that you haven't thought about this week. Jesus' current ministry. He is interceding on behalf of His people every moment of every day because He rose again, not just to prove He is God, though it does that. He rose again that He might make intercession for you continually. You need it. Each one of us needs this kind of reconciliation and this kind of advocate before the Father. And Jesus comes in love. He was full of grace and truth, it says in John 1. Just as we read in Psalm 15, God deserves glory because of His gracious loving kindness, His covenant love, and His truth. Jesus came, it says in John 1, full of grace and truth, and He lived a life actively obeying every commandment of God, and He died being punished by God. For our sins, it was God's pleasure to crush Him. This is the passive obedience of Jesus, that He took on our sin, obeying God, going to the cross. He was actively obedient for 33 years, and He was passively obedient on the cross. And it is through 
faith in the risen King Jesus, that He is the God of the universe who saves with power, that we then get His righteousness credited to our account. And Jesus looks at us and no more does the triune God see sin and wretchedness and filth and darkness and dirt, but He sees perfect righteousness. A righteousness that's foreign to us, that we didn't conjure up, but came from outside and was placed on us. As Jesus does this in salvation, justifying the many, bearing the sins of many, and interceding for the many. This is the gospel. I want us to close by looking at Romans 8, starting at verse 31, that you would see in the very words of God the beauty of what Jesus has done. Romans 8, starting at verse 31. After giving an amazing set, set of verses, I mean, all of Scripture is amazing, but Romans 8, 28 through 30 is just like, Wow. After talking about all of those God foreknew, He predestined, He called, He justified, He glorified, the amazing work of God and salvation, the Apostle Paul asked this question, what shall we say to these things? Very appropriate question. After hearing the beauty of the gospel that I just shared with you, that's the gospel from me to you. After coming to grips with the reality of gospel truth, what do we say? Well, if you're a believer, this is what you say. If God is for us, who's against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is He who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Verse 37, but in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the good news of the resurrection of Christ, validating His death, validating His life, bringing to us rest and comfort and blessed assurance that He took our sin and we get His righteousness. Martin Luther said this. I've been waiting all week to share this quote with you. Martin Luther said this in a prayer to God, Lord Jesus you are my righteousness, and I am your sin. You took on you what was mine, yet set on me what was yours. If 
If you get that, you get the gospel. If you are coming to Jesus with your own righteousness, you haven't gotten the gospel. If you come to Jesus saying, all I have is sin to give you, and all the righteousness I have is yours, you know Him. You get it. You understand the gospel. And you're secure forever. What can separate you? Nothing. Like Sproul said in the video before the sermon, death is just a transition. Death doesn't separate you from God. There are people out there who believe you die and you go into the ground and you're just asleep. That would be death separating us from God. But death does not separate us from God if we are in Christ. Death is just a transition to go to an even better place. Hebrews 7, 25, I quoted this to you earlier. He is able, Jesus, is able to save forever those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. Why is Jesus living? To get in front of you, to stand between you and the Father, to bring you near to God, always living to do that on your behalf. What a good God we serve. I want you to believe this. (laughs) If I could save you, I would save you. But I hope you're hearing it. I hope you're understanding it. I hope it's clear. And I hope that today, if you've never believed it, I hope this Easter Sunday, 2021, is day one of being a Christian. That you would be saved and born again today, never to be removed from God's family, but to always be secure in the arms of Christ. That you would be able to sing something as beautiful as this. I I heard this song for the first time this week. For lo, what hope before us stands? You finish all that you began. Eternal joy is in your hands and all of our tomorrows. Come to know eternal joy in Christ and be secure in Him for all of your tomorrows. Lord, we thank You that we aren't praying to a grave or a tombstone but that we are praying to You, the living God. We ask that You would fill our hearts with joy as we reflect on the resurrection, the most amazing event in all of history that has separated time itself, that we would be full of that eternal joy that You give us in Jesus alone. Cause us to humbly set aside all of our efforts to please You and recognize that you have done what you've pleased in crushing your son and bringing him back to life to display for all that Jesus is the only way that we can be reconciled to God. We love you. We thank you. We can't wait to see with our own eyes our risen King. It's in his name we pray. Amen.